everyone, and welcome to another episode of Intrigue Explained, another Diplomats Debate edition. My name is Dimitri, and with me is my co-host and opponent, John Fowler. Welcome, <laughs> Thanks, John. Thanks, Dimitri. Opponent. That's a, that's a new one. <laughs> It's it's less abusive than I than my normal intros, John. I'm actually I'm grateful. Uh, normally, this is my chance. <laughs> normally, this is my chance to just like swig a haymaker at your face when you're not expecting. I feel like it. I've got Stockholm syndrome, so I'll say thank you very much, Dimitri. I really appreciate your generosity. It's good that you can recognize that I'm doing you a favor. <laughs> Got to feed into that Stockholm syndrome. Today's episode is a particularly one that's particularly close to our hearts it's a slightly navel gazing one i have to say and it's all about whether countries still actually need a foreign service this is something that i think john you wanted to talk about but what spurred it was a new report released by the australian government that had some pretty preeminent uh, figures in foreign policy and public policy look at the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and put out some pretty damning findings as well as making some recommendations about how it can be strengthened. And so we wanted to get into whether that was a good excuse to go. Is it time to call the whole thing off? John, you're going to be taking the turn the building into a Starbucks position. Do you feel like you're ready to betray everyone we've yeah, ever loved? I'm ready to lose all my friends and make new enemies. Uh, well, I'm gonna, hopefully I'll be a little bit more nuanced than that. And, we'll, and, I, and I guess at the start of the conversation, when we have it, we'll lay out some guidelines about what we are and aren't talking about. But I, I also want to say that the reason that I wanted to talk about this wasn't just because it's kind of in the news in Australia, but you had a great um, a great tweet thread, uh, as you are so often want to do, um, about that. And I and it really just got me thinking about some of the issues. And I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe it's only interesting to us, but why don't we try and find out if it's interesting to more people? There's something particularly soul-destroying about, you know, I work with a lot of academics, a lot of public policy figures who'd be like, as I wrote in my book... <laughs> And I'll be like, well, if you scroll back through Twitter far enough, you'll find 13 linked tweets that make a salient point. I believe I half drunk tweeted about this once. Why don't you go read that? <laughs> if, if you scroll far enough in my TikToks, uh, then find some thoughts I had. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I don't know if the foreign service is redundant, but I certainly am. <laughs> John, you come to us, of course, from International Intrigue, fresh off your appearance on Morning Morning mm-hmm. Brew, fresh off your co-founder heading to the White House Correspondents yeah. Dinner. Yeah, it's been a big one. Yeah, you now move in illustrious Well, I'll let, let, me, let me even name drop more. Uh, I was out uh, at, in LA last week at the Milken Conference, which had me rubbing shoulders with... Uh, some pretty big people in finance. I mean, I say rubbing shoulders, sitting in the audience as they as they lectured us about uh, you know the state of the world's finances. But um, I also went to a uh, a private screening of um, Bernard Henri Levy's new documentary uh, Slava Ukraini, uh, and had a conversation with that uh, unbuttoned shirt French uh, Lothario. <laughs> um, his his documentary is interesting. I mean, he he kind of did a, a sort of like he's spent four or five. months months literally on the front lines in Bakhmut and those kinds of places um it's not a particularly like well-made documentary but I don't think it's supposed to be it's it's worth checking out if people if people sort of very just like um you know raw footage from what it's like being in genuinely in the trenches on the front line so and I have to say I mean this war has been 
by far the most kind of directly televised. Mm. I, I don't know about other people, but because I'm obviously obsessed with this war for all sorts of reasons, you know, you do find yourself watching something that three years ago, I would have said, this is a snuff yeah. film. And I would never in a million years be watching it. But here I am sitting there watching helmet cam or body cam footage of a Ukrainian soldier waging mm -hmm. war and, and sort of taking human human lives and you're glued to it and it's also it is simultaneously the most confronting thing i've ever seen and remarkably remarkably normal now because of just this saturation of cam footage drone footage you know you see videos that are you know in some ways snuff films you are watching human beings die and they're being set to rock music and techno. Yeah. I, I think that what you're pointing at there, and not to digress too far, is just this: it's the it's the the trade-off between is it better to uh, you know film these things and publish them and everyone to see the horrors of what's going on, so that we're not you know naive and blasé about the horrors of war, or does doing that desensitize us to the horrors of war and in some ways not knowing and having it described through reports and first-hand accounts and documentaries and interviews some maybe sometimes that's more powerful i mean i, I don't know like so, some of the horrors of world war one and world war two are fairly effectively rendered through books and poetry rather than photos of dead soldiers so i don't know it's, it's an interesting debate yeah it's a really interesting question uh we could talk about it for hours and, and sort of to, to expand on that it's not that we're watching, we're not watching 24-hour live streams either. We're getting selectively edited mm -hmm. footage of, you know, as, as I was saying before, like literally set to a musical soundtrack mm. with, with subtitles where someone's showing you what they want to show you as well. So the question is, to what extent is it also propagandistic and showing sure. you a side of war that isn't the 23-hour kind Banality. of horror, but is the... Exactly. I mean, it's there's so much to think about what this is doing to all of our brains that thankfully it's not our department as foreign affairs people precisely but there is just so much to think about for there. sure i agree to save you some time so that you can think about these big issues the international intrigue newsletter dumps really pertinent really good analysis on international affairs stories right into your inbox every morning in i think something that averages about a six minute read six to ten minute read if you depending on how much you stop to try to pronounce long names <laughs> uh and it's really just a phenomenal resource that i really recommend people subscribe to the links are at the bottom of the podcast we really do recommend it we use it to build this podcast speaking of this podcast uh we were off last week uh not many people know this but i was actually busy piloting two drones into the kremlin <laughs> Uh, as part of a that's what you're doing us opt <laughs> yeah yeah i would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for the meddling russian kremlin press <laughs> yeah, call. right I was, gonna, I was gonna say state media uh, and i mean look there's not too much you can say about this this is another one though sorry john you've said this on episode after episode where whenever we get into these intelligence spooky spaces we just kind of have to accept we will probably never know right. who was piloting that right. drone I, uh, I was listening to a podcast recently um, with uh, Richard Dearlove, who was the Ed 
ex-head of uh, UK's MI6. And he was kind of reflecting on this. I mean, for, for people who aren't aware, two drones allegedly tried to attack the Kremlin uh, last week. And anyway, Richard Dearlove was kind of like, none, none of it really makes sense. He was like, the footage looked like it was kind of, you know, not necessarily, um, you know, accurate. He was like, it's weird to me that drones would be able to get that close to the Kremlin. He's like, piloting them from Ukraine is un- unthinkable because they were small drones and they, yeah. you know, they, they're not, they don't have that flight time. So they've been launched within Russia, but close enough to the Kremlin. He was like, none of it really made sense and he i think he came down on exactly what you just said which is the idea like we'll probably never know but the most likely explanation was that it was a russian kind of weird false flaggy kind of thing that they had hoped might generate some justification if they wanted to you know send a missile to ukraine's government quarter but he was like he was like i have almost no confidence that that's true i just have I have no other ideas, basically. Yeah, I'm sort of, I, I tried to do a ranking of plausible explanations for this. And my one with almost no confidence was Ukrainian sympathizers or Ukrainian intelligence basically humiliating the Kremlin and yeah. sort of bringing the war home yeah. a little bit. My two was like weird Russian nonsense the false flag thing just doesn't make a ton no, of sense. No, none of it does. It's not like they've been holding back on firing missiles into Kiev. Like, it's no. not... They weren't waiting for an excuse. Right. So, like... And they tried to kill Zelensky, like, five times in the first week of right. the war. So, like, just none of it makes sense. It's just mostly just really funny. It's weird. Because a drone was able to get to, like, the flagpole of the Kremlin, and that's just embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I don't think there's much to add to it. That it's just weird, and and uh, it's it's fun to speculate, but yeah, I don't think that anyone really knows. Honestly, my one takeaway was when that came out, and the Russian immediate response was, "We know this is a Ukrainian slash U.S. assassination attempt on Putin, <laughs> who lives twenty kilometers away." It was like it was such a transparent lie that was nevertheless picked up by a whole bunch of useful idiots, that my initial reaction was like, if you are a supporter of Russia or you you have sympathy for the Russian argument, doesn't it just hurt you that they seem to have no respect for you and they're not even giving you good fodder <laughs> to kind of support them with? There wasn't any attempt to come up with something credible. They were just like, oh... They're trying to kill Vova. Like, we have to stop them. I feel like the Occam's Razor uh, explanation is just that some little Russian kid has uh, just lost his Christmas present. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, that's, and that's as simple as it gets. Sanka, where's that droid we got you? Look, funny story. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> you know how you said I should pay more attention to politics? Yeah, exactly. Uh... Well, these things these things provide some levity for you to be able to to to, to wake up the next day and uh, analyze the actual war and the stuff that is is not um, you know amusing. I think this is a good spot to take, as we always do, a quick look at two stories that we just want to put on your radar. Uh, I'm going to throw it over to John for both of them. These are stories that were in international intrigue that are really really important, but often not around a particular flashpoint in one case, and secondly, about parts of the world that just don't get as much press as other parts, at least here in the West. So I wanted to begin with 
just any kind of update you can give us on the Turkish election. Yeah. Um, so I actually think this is a really important story that, um, you know, it's getting picked up in the mainstream media, to be fair, but I think perhaps folks don't kind of grasp the importance of it. So, so on Sunday, Turkey will, will vote for a new president. Um, you know, Turkey's a really important country, probably underrated in importance. It's uh, the second mm. biggest military in NATO after the US. It is obviously a kind of bridge between Europe-ish kind of cultural values and, you know, Arabic, Syria, that, that you know, that kind of part of the world. Obviously, it's hedging against Russia. So it's like this real um, geopolitical linchpin in, a, in the middle of a very difficult area, obviously not far from Ukraine at the other end of the Black Sea. So all, all this kind of stuff. Um, and it's... President Erdogan has been in power for you know 20, 20 odd years now, um, and has generally, I think, has been seen to take Turkey in a direction of illiberalism and more authoritarianism. I don't think it's fair to call him a dictator or anything like that. I mean, we're having elections on on Sunday, which most folks uh, seem to think are freeish and fairish. Um, but anyway, the, so the stakes. I guess what I'm saying is the stakes of the election are pretty big, um, and this election is the first time i think certainly since i've been cognizant of these issues since that that erdogan is a genuine chance of not winning um you know he's he's been a huge force in turkish politics for a generation um you know i think the previous elections were not even really a contest uh but this time it looks like there's a chance he'll lose so there there's a couple of updates on on the opposition there's the, the main opposition candidate whose whose name I'm honestly not even going to try to pronounce but it begins with K and ends in Oglu I think <laughs> um but uh he he he's a strong candidate because he's kind of the leader of a an opposition coalition which is the first time a turkish opposition party has managed to kind of work together with other opposition parties uh, and then the second thing was another viable candidate um, uh, pulled out yesterday um, for reasons that are fairly opaque, but he, he had had some accusations of bribery and all this kind of stuff. Um, Bloomberg reported this morning that the markets had rallied on that news because I think they're sort of seeing the biggest... I mean, I think markets want Erdogan to go. They think Turkey needs to liberalize. They think Turkey needs a bit more stability and, and a little less kind of Erdogan-ness in Turkey. And the idea that there's one main opposition figure is better for that because it doesn't split the anti-Erdogan vote. Um, yeah, I, I guess all of this takes place against the background of Turkey's economy, which is inflation hit 80% last year and I think is still at 50%. Cost of living is horrific. There was an earthquake earlier this year that we that we talked about that was killed 50-odd thousand people that the mm -hmm. government was really criticized for in terms of their response and, and potentially the, the corruption in building code. So there's this general environment, I think, that a lot of disaffected people in Turkey, particularly youth and poor, um, and that Erdogan might actually lose. I mean, it's not just that Turkish inflation has been high. The way that he has tried to combat that, from what I understand, is by lowering interest rates, which is the opposite to how our own reserve right. banks try to try to fight inflation, where they tighten the money supply He's tried to expand the money supply. He's just raised the salaries of all civil servants in Turkey by 45%, which feels like the sort of thing you shouldn't be able, you shouldn't be allowed to do four days before an election. Right. But here we are. But again, probably not going to do wonders for inflation. 
so there is sort of an economic aspect to this and a huge geopolitical aspect to this because how many times in the stories we've covered in the last couple of odd months has there been an Erdogan mm-hmm. angle? Whether it's whether it's on Ukraine, whether it's on NATO with Finland and Sweden, there, there's been Turkish elements to everything. Syria, it's just a, a, an opposition leader taking power would could mean a fundamental shift in all sorts of parts of the dominant. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a great point. But I, th- I think one thing that's important to always remember in these kinds of situations is that we don't really have a sense of what an opposition leader, this this character would... Uh, and again, I, I apologize for not pronouncing his name, but I really have no idea where to start. Um, but uh, you, maybe you can have a go. You're much better with names and accents than I am. But uh, we don't ha- we don't know what he'd be like, right? Like, I think there's a general sense he'd be more liberal and that he, you know, he's in opposition to Erdogan. So that's the assumption. But... Who, who knows? I mean, I, I certainly don't have a deep enough background in Turkish politics to say, oh, well, if he comes in, then this will happen and this will happen. Um, and in some sense, there is a, uh, you know, Erdogan is a lot of things, but, um, you know, he's a very wily geopolitical operator and he's pretty good at playing off countries in the region against each other. So mm-hmm. it could there, there could be a big shakeup if he doesn't win. I think it's a really good place to leave it and move on to our second our second story vaguely nearby pakistan mm. is experiencing immense civil unrest all relating to a corruption charges against imran mm-hmm. khan the former prime minister john can you can you kind of talk us through what's happening yeah so um this is the ongoing saga of imran khan who was the former prime minister as you mentioned who was booted from office uh last year uh, on those corruption charges. He has vowed to return and has been kind of waging uh, rhetorical war against the government and the army um, since he was booted out last year. On Tuesday, he was arrested on charges of graft by a special court in Islamabad. And then that has kicked off days of protests from his supporters in, in Pakistan. You know, fairly violent from what I can understand protests, not necessarily to, to people, but They've been destroying buildings, burning things. You know those kinds of those kinds of protests. So pretty serious stuff. I think the, the the current prime minister of Pakistan called it terrorism. So you know that you know not not like polite marches in the in the in the street that you know they've informed the police about. The worry there is obviously <laughs> well, there's a couple of contexts here. One, Pakistan's economy is literally on the brink of default. Uh, it needs an IMF bailout next month, I think it is, in June or, or maybe July, but very, very soon. Um, and as we know, the IMF is is not going to you know step in and help out a country that is tearing itself apart and that can't make promises about yep. economic reforms. Um, so you have protests roiling the country. You have this brink, you're on the brink of economic collapse. Things are not good in Pakistan at all. And then the most recent update is that the Supreme Court of uh, Pakistan just this morning, I believe, or late last night, potentially, I think it might've been late last night, um, said that Imran Khan's Tuesday arrest was actually illegal. So they've released him, but they didn't release him because they said he can't go back to his house because that would cause more protests. So they've kept him in a guest house uh, before he has to appear tomorrow on unrelated charges that he was always going to appear on. So, you know, I I think when it comes to Pakistan, it's kind of like God knows what's going to happen next. But the, the, the if you zoom out, the forces of Imran Khan's supporters and his populist message versus the army is one that that battle is not going to go away. And I would I think it'd be a brave person to 
to predict how it's going to play out, but it's playing out against the context of Pakistan could well collapse economically in the coming months. And I think it's important to remember just how critical Pakistan yeah. is in the region. Pakistan's relationship with, with Afghanistan is sort of a critical linchpin in the region. They're one of the they're about the only ones that can talk to the Taliban at least a little. And the relationship between Pakistani intelligence and various aspects of the Taliban has been a long running yep. saga we don't have time to cover. Pakistan's relationship with India, we are talking about it, two nuclear armed mm-hmm. states that do occasionally have literal armed border skirmishes is probably the best word. But, you know, we're talking about artillery shelling at, at times. So that is an incredibly sensitive, s- sensitive kind of situation to manage, none of which is helped by the prospect of looming massive social unrest combined with looming economic disaster. Yeah. And, and, and obviously, don't forget my pet, my pet topic, which is China, is hugely involved in Pakistan. Its biggest Belt and Road investment by far is in the Pakistani uh, economic corridor. So they have um, a considerable interest in making sure Pakistan doesn't you know, fall apart because not only might their investment be, their investments be damaged, but you know, I think China sees Pakistan as a real ally and a route to the Arabian Gulf for them. So there's a lot of different forces mm-hmm. from the outside too that have an interest in keeping Pakistan, well, keeping a lid on things at least, but who, who knows? One of these days we're going to cover a I know, story I'm sorry. it's like, everything, everything's good. There are no outside forces. There's no China <laughs> angle. The US hasn't really got a foot in the door. It's just, here's this thing that happened. I think we need it's... to talk more about Bhutan and more about Costa Rica in that case. <laughs> Diplomats debate best holiday <laughs> locations in Costa Rica. The episode our audience exactly. craves. Speaking of what our audience craves. What a good hope, segue. <laughs> what, a, what a segue. Tell you what, like the analysis takes up 3% of my mental energy with this podcast. Try to come up with neat segues and yeah. the rest. Our main topic for today is, as we said at the top, do governments even need foreign services anymore? Is a foreign service a good investment? Are embassies around the world a good investment? Or are they perhaps an anachronistic relic of back when it took five months to send your ambassador a note by ship? Before we get into arguing, John kind of arguing that they are maybe outdated and me trying to defend our former colleagues because I am still loyal, let's maybe establish some some ground rules. John doesn't realize that on the podcast version, you can't see the faces. <laughs> I'm shaking my head furiously when I say stuff like that, uh, and I will just edit out any denials <laughs> to make myself look good. But let, let's maybe both set some ground rules. Just to, I'll start, and then you can throw some in. So I think to narrow the scope of the debate, I think what makes sense is to talk almost exclusively about bilateral, so country to country missions and diplomacy. I'd want to set aside, you know, missions to the WTO, to the United Nations, uh, to, you know, the International Criminal Court, those kind of things. Because while that's an interesting discussion about whether they're still useful, I don't think that's really the crux of what we're talking about. It's a separate conversation. Mm -hmm. I also want to set aside the functions of embassies that are not diplomatic or diplomatic in the traditional foreign relations sense. So officers that are consular officers that work to help you out if you get, say, if you happen to die overseas and you, your family wants to repatriate your remains, 
they're vitally important, but not really the subject of. I think I think we furiously agree that consular and passport services are the are you know indispensable and they do great work. So we don't. There's no there's no room for debate there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The as I said in 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 the Twitter thread, wandering into consular within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, you meet the people who do the genuinely really and you're hard. Like, oh, really you're busy. Work. <laughs> You're busy and everything you work on is so important and also occasionally horrific. I'm off to write some talking points, but really we're both, we're both weirdly paid the same, which feels mm, like it did justice. Mm. And also we should also say that sort of both, both John and I, while we have critiqued the department in the past and we try to be open and honest about areas of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade where we think that there have been shortcomings, I personally hugely enjoyed my time there. I love my colleagues, I still hold them in the highest regard, and none of this is intended as a personal attack on any any individuals or even any kind of specifically the Australian Department. We want to have a, a real conversation about foreign policy and diplomats. As right, a I think, and I, I mean, you know, I think that's what separates cultures like Australia's and you know Europe and the US is that you can have open debates which are perhaps a little critical of things that you actually like and believe in, but want to make better, right? Um, so I, and I think it's a very important thing to do. I, um, and I, and I would just echo all of that. I, I think, I think this is a conversation meant to, um, you know, interrogate the purpose of what we do rather than the, mm. you know, the character or the work of the people who are actually doing it. Yeah. And I think maybe to, to set you up and to, to get you ready to begin. The yeah, first be, begin the end of my career. Yeah. Taxpayers pay a, a decent amount, not a huge chunk of anyone's budget, but we are talking about billions of dollars in a country like Australia to maintain very expensive buildings in the centers of expensive capital cities and to staff those buildings with quite well-remunerated foreign policy professionals that are supposed to deliver value. And I think if we can't make an argument for why those people are delivering value to the taxpayer and to the government, then I think it's entirely legitimate to ask why they're there. So with that, I'll, I'll hand over to you. You are very much red teaming yeah. this. Why should all of our former colleagues? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, honestly, honestly, <laughs> the state of your setups. <laughs> um, okay, ignoring that last bit. Um, I guess I want to just. I guess my my view comes from the idea of you alluded to it. It, it. The purpose of a of a diplomatic service, such as it was, or at least the model of a diplomatic service, and having physical presences around the world in buildings, was developed and and sort of perfected and you know became crucially important in an era, or at least before an era of instant communication via the internet. Um, you know, you know, it depends how far you want to go back about diplomacy, but let's just take the 20th century. For much of the 20th century, um, you know, getting a message from your government to another government, particularly if they're on the other side of the world, took many days. Um, and you needed someone to be able to talk around those issues to, in you know, inform inform each side what was actually going on in the country news papers often weren't available around the world you know it was a world where you just very much didn't know what was going on on the other side of the world and an embassy and a diplomatic service was a professional you know trusted um intelligence network and and i don't mean intelligence in terms of spies but i mean intelligence as in terms of information and and, and analysis mm. so obviously the the first argument is that like 
that if that's the if that is the animating and motivating force behind the model that we that we have but we haven't updated that model really to deal with the fact that the world has entirely changed the way it communicates then i think prima facie you you kind of need to re-examine whether it's still fit for purpose and, and we can get into that and i and i don't necessarily think it is but i'm i'm drawing a lot on my experience as a as a diplomat in china we were you know Previously, a, di- a diplomatic mission in China would interpret China to let you know what's going on, deliver messages to a government. Now, particularly when, when I was there in, in Shanghai, there is no chance that we were able to do better work than, say, the press there or um, someone could read on their phones about what was going on or a business delegation can figure out how to get there on their own. They don't need the embassy to open doors as much as they used to. Sometimes they do. Um, There was just like all of that animating idea of like, we were the interpreters and the gatekeepers of what was going on in China. That has all been broken down by by the internet, really. And, And I used to joke, I used to say like, what's the point of me writing a cable about Chinese monetary policy because Gabrielle, who was the the, the FT correspondent there and, and a good friend, he, he's going to do it much better, much quicker, and much more like authoritatively than I than I would. So what is what exactly is my purpose here? I think it, and look, I think these are these are valid points. Obviously, the ability to communicate the way we are right now uh, across continents, face to face, digitally, has changed some ability to deliver messages. And as you say, where there is good reporting in other countries that is accessible and that speaks to your nation's interests, maybe some of the intelligence gathering function has also potentially been supplanted by the ability to get a foreign newspaper at the touch of your fingertips in a way that you couldn't before. So I certainly think there is something to that argument, and I don't want to be dismissive of it. But I would say a couple of things. You know, you began by talking about the need to deliver messages. And I do think that it does make a difference, perhaps not in the Chinese context, where I think many you and many of your colleagues were locked mm. out uh, of direct relations with the Chinese government, but in a lot of other... It's an contexts, outlier, though, that example, really. It is. In other contexts, the ability to deliver a message in person and to take the official message and to use your connections that you've built up through sometimes years of informal networking within the government to be able to explain where it's coming from, to be able to speak off the record, to be able to try to address concerns even before the message arrives, to preempt it in ways that you probably couldn't through a formal Zoom call. This kind of function of being on the ground and building those relations, I think it does still matter as the lubricant to what can otherwise be easily misinterpreted messages. I'd also say, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you respond to that point in, in a sec. I do think it was interesting, you know, you talked about your friend Gabrielle the FT writes an article about Chinese monetary policy and it goes into the FT and maybe it's picked up. But don't you think there is a value to having someone on the ground who can monitor, whose job it is to monitor all of those sources, including those in the local language? And to be translating that information into the interests of the home country and the home government. Yeah. Okay. So I'll take I'll take that point. I, I think 
I think, you know, we don't have enough time to kind of really drill down on on what we're talking about here. But I think what I'm talking about is this diplomatic function of like as an as an information provider. I mean, you remember this. A lot of the cables come across the systems, both, you know, classified and unclassified, were things that, you know, could really you could really have read in a newspaper. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that you sit there and go, OK, we're being paid, you know, X number of thousands of dollars to take a couple of newspaper articles, synthesize them, maybe have a conversation with a local academic and kind of put that in a cable. And I just, I guess my point about the FT was, I don't think the value add over what you get in the FT, and and perhaps there are certain issues in which you really want to be able to go and talk to a contact about the the specific Australian angle on that. Um, But I don't think the value add is justifies the cost of having people there. And I don't think that, I think with the with the internet, you can ask those questions of those experts without having to be in the country, specifically using resources. Now, you know, I think to be clear, I, I don't want to. My argument isn't that we shouldn't have diplomatic services. Of course, my argument is more just that we haven't re- rethought from the ground up how they operate, what they should look like, what their, you know, the model really. And, and you know, you, you make points about having contacts on the ground, you know, understanding the local culture, building relationships so that when you have to deliver a difficult message or you have to kind of try and influence thinking, you're there and you can do it much, much more effectively. All of that is true, but I would say a couple of things. One, you don't need an embassy of hundreds of people to do that. You need a couple, Mm. let's, let's be very generous and say half a dozen to a dozen experts on the ground who are there for longer than a couple of years too, because this is the other thing about the diplomatic service is just as you, it's a famous thing across every diplomatic service as they say, you spend your first year going, what the hell am I doing? The second year going, oh, I think maybe I can figure this out. And your third year going, ah, oh, I might be getting the hang of this. And then you're done. You lose all your contacts and, and you move on. So I, what I'm saying is I think the model is broken is that perhaps we could have a 10th the size of, the like the kind of diplomatic policy officers overseas leave them in place for longer make them more senior or more politically empowered so they can actually get things done rather than having to write talking points and and memos for the people who do do things and get rid of the informational side of things because again in places like i mean china's my example but even in places like in europe how much value add are you adding by by reporting on czech politics when czech newspapers do a much better job of it and google translates a thing yeah i mean i think on that on that last point there's a question of really the distinction there isn't how much are you doing that's more than the czech newspapers the question is why do you need to be in the czech republic to report on czech newspapers because of course the 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 issue is that nobody in capital is reading Czech okay take, take france then so you are being paid to read okay i i don't think there are that many people in most capitals that are reading le monde no. every day so so it is useful to have somebody whose job it but is. you hope the people who need to read french politics are or at least you know paying attention i i, I guess my point is i hope the people in canberra or dc or wherever it is aren't going well my job is french politics back in capital but i'll wait until the report comes in from the diplomats rather than kind of have an understanding of the french news ecosystem myself again and i think i don't think you'd necessarily dispute this this is as you say an argument for how can diplomats abroad generate more value in ways that aren't easily replicable with a, a yeah. google search and just listen and just intuitively i mean it 
it genuinely we we both know it does help to be on the ground it does help to meet people face to face where you're able to do so it does help to be able to have quiet conversations over coffee to find out who's a legitimate actor and who isn't which isn't something you necessarily get from political for sure Czechoslovakia. So, okay well, let me put let me put a different angle to it okay I, I accept all of that so why wouldn't we then as a as a country or as a government outsource let's say 80 percent of what we do on that front not all of it because some of it is classified some of it is sensitive some of it is difficult but outsource it to a global consulting firm that can kind of work on your behalf but you is going to be a lot lot cheaper than standing up embassies with security and posting diplomats back and forth 80 percent of the stuff that you're talking about like understanding who's legit and who's not and who we should talk to when we send our ministers there surely most of that could be done by a if not a newspaper take your point there's there's on the ground stuff but like why couldn't mckinsey do that stuff and i'm lobbing you a softball because of your love of mckinsey there (laughs) well i mean i would finally understand what mckinsey does if that's what they were doing that'd be great i I think that the counter argument to that is firstly i'm not a thousand percent sure it would be cheaper big blue chip consultancies are not but they're not a billion dollars a, a year. cheap exercise. Which is kind of what DFAT's budget is. To cover 70 countries, or the percentage of DFAT's budget, which is bilateral reporting, is not 1 billion. To cover 70 countries plus, I think McKinsey would charge you a pretty penny. But even setting, setting that question aside, setting the question of cost aside, I do think that, at least in my experience, you, get, you do gain a level of access by being able to say you are the from government. the... Australian Australian embassy and you are a representative of the government, you speak for the government, um, especially as an ambassador, but even as a th- lowly third secretary, that a McKinsey kind of information gathering MBA would not necessarily be able to open those those same doors. So perhaps there are there is some level of information you wouldn't be able to get, some level of representation you wouldn't be able to make. So there is that kind of counter. It's also, I think, and you know, our department wasn't always the best at this. I'm sure no department's perfected it. The Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade speaks civil service and the cables are written in a language that is designed to gel with ministerial priorities. It's designed to kind of address the things that the civil service is interested in. McKinsey as a private sector consultancy doesn't necessarily speak that parlance, doesn't necessarily have that same kind of cultural background, and by the way, isn't bound by the civil service code uh, and doesn't have top security clearance in a lot of cases. So there would be practical, I think practical and compositional barriers to simply outsourcing that information gathering. But, and I want to put to you something that was in my thread and that I think resonated unfortunately with a lot of people is the idea that perhaps we're looking at the supply side of this equation is it possible that the real issue is more on the demand side which is that unless you are one of the Czech Republic's neighbors there just didn't doesn't always seem to be a lot of demand for the kind of high quality intelligence that embassies could gather if they really leaned into it beyond what's in Politico. Wait, so when you say demand side, you mean demand from other departments within government for the kinds of information that the Foreign Service can, can, can get? Is that what you're talking about? Other departments and most specifically from the government. Itself. Right, yeah, okay. I think that's definitely a problem. Um, but I think it's a chicken and egg 
uh, problem, right? Like it, it is, do they not have the demand because they've over the last 15, 20, 30 years been like, eh, I don't really know why I'd read a cable, which you mentioned the language cables are written in is like speaking civil service. I think one of my, and you know, I, I've been fairly, fairly open about this, but one of the things I, I, I criticize DFAT most for is the way they communicate. I think they've DFAT's communication style has lost it internal power within government and i think it makes it in, uninterpretable mm. what they're trying to say for example cables are anachronistic no one reads like that anymore no one communicates like that anymore um so is that the cause of the the the, the lowering demand within government like the idea maybe people would eat up a tldr kind of here's what's going on in check politics and why you should why you should give a f about it or is it because no one cares about it that DFAT hasn't had to change its 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 kind of approach to that stuff. I mean, there's no real answer to that, but I think you're hitting on exactly what I was going to put to you, which is how do we justify spending, I accept it's not a billion dollars on the policy side of DFAT mm. abroad, um, but you know, a considerable sum of taxpayer dollars on compiling these reports that you have said are, you know, value additive over what people can get for, you know, $150 subscription, if there's no demand for it, how uh, surely that tells you that it, the, the model is broken and that we need to either cut costs massively to align it with the lower demand within government or change the model and say, it's time for us to increase that demand by showing people we can be value additive back at home. And I mean, I think it's no secret uh, that DFAT has really lost a lot of its domestic argumentative power within government as as a department, right? Like, I don't think that anyone sees Australia's foreign policy as being dictated and driven by DFAT anymore. It's it's defense and, and, and other departments that are, are winning that battle. I don't, like, only, for me, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and, and not getting results. Surely if DFAT's in this position, it needs to go back and examine why we are putting people overseas if they're not, if there's no demand for their work. There's a, there's a, how are you doing it? And there is a, is it worth doing? And I think those two are worth separating. I think on the question of why are you doing it? Can we imagine the kind of information or the kind of representation that might be occurring at a post in, and in Australia, we often use the example of Europe. So you think about smaller countries in Europe in which Australia has an, an embassy. And yes, okay, there is a consular function there and there's a passports function there. There are a lot Just of Just say Australian it. You mean Portugal. In... <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> How dare you, sir? It's a beautiful place. How dare you? But, you know, we just opened an, an embassy in Switzerland. Right. Previously, Australia covered Switzerland from Berlin. And now, uh, I think a little while ago, we have opened an embassy in Switzerland. And on the one hand, I completely understand why it is legitimate for the average Australian taxpayer to say, why am I funding a very generous cost of living adjusted ambassador's salary in Bern? Uh, when what does that what does that deliver for me? I think I understand where that logic comes from, but my question is: Can we can we imagine a a way that that person could be useful? That embassy could be useful to policymaking. I mean, Switzerland is one of the largest banking centers in the world. It's one of the la largest commodity trading and shipping hubs in the world. Uh, it is the home of international diplomacy. Like. Are there, are, 
are there useful things that embassy could be doing? Setting aside the question of whether historically or in recent history, DFAT has or hasn't been effective in utilizing that embassy to shape Australian policy. I mean, yeah, I mean, when you frame it like that, it, it, it's like, oh, yeah, okay, it makes sense. But I would just, I would just argue that, you know, it, in, in countries like Switzerland, it's not a bad example. Like most of our, I mean, leaving aside all the multilateral stuff, which I think we agree is useful, yeah. but the bilateral relationship there is surely 99% of our interests are business interests. So wouldn't we be better off actually focusing on having better relations with our domestic businesses and our people who are, you know, the Australian companies, I don't know, Glencore is probably a company that (laughs) has a huge presence in Australia and is a Swiss company. Like, why wouldn't we be talking to the executives there and getting their perspective on Swiss policy, Swiss you know, is it because we're saying, oh, well, we can't trust anything Glencore says because they're a company and we need our own people in there because it's unbiased? I mean, the idea that like only an ambassador could give unlock the secrets of Switzerland for the Australian government seems not real to me and not and the value of having someone there probably doesn't justify their salary. Um, but, you know, again, I'm not talking about getting rid of dip- dip- diplomats. Like that's a silly thing to say. Like, for example, in the Pacific, where we actually influence policy and we can have a conversation with the prime minister of Tonga and they might come and say, how have you managed this problem in Australia? And we can give them actual advice and actual capabilities. You know, go f- we should have a huge embassy there. I get that. But to your point in Europe, I just, I, I, just, I just can't comprehend the value other than it being a nice posting and therefore impossible to get rid of unless you want a mutiny of diplomats. <laughs> Why we would spend the money we do to get the information we do when there's no demand for it and what little demand there would be for it can be replicated externally. Let's let's focus, as you've done there, on posts that are at the Venn diagram intersection of not in your country's immediate backyard, perhaps not as well wired and covered by sort of reputable news sources as others are, you know, if I want to read what's happening in US politics, I, I probably don't necessarily need the cables. There are a billion sources, maybe not so much what is happening in Tongan politics. So so there's kind For of sure. the, that as well. And so let, let, let's indeed focus on countries in Europe where the question is like, okay, it's, it's wealthy, it's well connected to the internet, you can Zoom call whenever you want. And you can read their papers and there is lots of good, reputable, independent media to tell you what is going on in their country. And you could pick up the phone and call a think tanker in that country if you really want to. So is there still a a value add? I think one, one thing that makes me say maybe there is, is this idea that even if there isn't necessarily a huge return on investment day to day, I saw what happened in Ukraine during the MH17 task force, where we suddenly, uh, a plane with uh, over 100 Australians was shot down over Ukraine, an incredibly complex Mm. situation. And suddenly we had a massive diplomatic challenge on our hands, but we had no embassy in the country. And we had... No, we covered it from Warsaw with an ambassador who would visit once a year, who I think did did a did as good a job as you could possibly do. But we had no presence, and we threw resources at it, and we threw generalists at it. But and this this might get me in trouble. At some point, we were trying to get a we were trying to get a bill passed that would allow a status of forces. Yeah, I remember that for, for Australian presence there, 
And at some point, somebody who will go nameless, but who was incredibly senior, turned to me and went, this just passed the Virkhovna Rada. Do, you, do we know how many houses of parliament Ukraine has? Uh, if that was the, the only one. Like, is this a bicameral or a unicameral legislature? And and what is it? I don't know the answer to that. It's there unicameral. we go. So we're done. There's, there's just one. Well, there you go. Yeah. Tick. But sort of this, like, we were we were operating through such a profound... Yeah. We knew nobody right. in the country. So when when something happens, whether it is the evacuation in Lebanon, whether it is a typhoon in the Philippines, suddenly having people who not only read the newspapers but walk the streets and who can call government officials and on a first-name basis say, Vidic, I really need this favor, suddenly all of those chips that have been piling up and costing you money, you can slide across right. the table and each of them return. Right. No, I think that's a fair point. I, I would I would say that you're painting a very generous picture of how good diplomats on whole are at doing exactly that and how receptive the host countries are to making those connections, right? Like Ukraine might be a good example of where they probably would have been willing to engage with us because mm. we're, you know, a relatively good faith actor and, and neutral, but there are plenty of places in which those relationships are not possible and, um, or at least a lot more difficult. Um, and maybe that's an argument for having diplomats there even more. I don't know. Mm. But I think, I think what I'm arguing here is too, because you're making great points, is that the current model is not right for it. Like, for example, if you want, if your argument of like, okay, we don't know where the next cluster thing is going to happen, uh, so we need to maintain a, a diplomatic presence in as many countries as we possibly can um, for that reason, is, is, it, is a full-blown embassy with an ambassador and all the cost and security, is that the best way to do it? Or do we have representative offices where we maybe we um, hire local staff and have one Australian, um, you know, based diplomat or something like that there kind of just keeping an eye on things, keeping capacity. Um, it's not a full-blown embassy. Maybe it looks more like a, a consulate, but without diplomatic status, perhaps something that can be maybe an Austrade office, maybe a, a separate department in which you can have a hybrid situation, a government office that can be staffed by a head of agriculture if the country abroad is most important to Australia because of its agricultural relationship or treasury or whatever it is. Um, you know, the idea just being that you tailor your relationship with those countries to the relationship it has with Australia and you're much more flexible and, and not as rigid being like, okay, we have to embassy there run by DFAT with an ambassador but we have a represent a representative. Maybe it's a business person. Maybe it's an honorary consul. This kind of idea. I think the counter argument to that would be, and this is definitely self-aggrandizing and sort of fairly navel-gazing, so feel free to tell me to jump in a lake. But I do think that foreign relations is hard and you often need a joined up connected strategy and somebody to be thinking about the big picture. And it is useful to have a model which is effectively like tentacles heading, like wheel and spoke with the sort of Department of Foreign Affairs covering all foreign affairs and then everybody being an actor of that department. That once you start saying, oh, instead of having somebody who works for DFAT, I'm going to have somebody who works for agriculture because the agriculture here is really important and they'll be the sole kind of representative and they'll be reporting to the Department of Agriculture. You do begin to 
you you risk a fragmentation in Australian farm and Australia's external voice or any country's external voice no longer singing from the same hymnal. Uh, you know, and we see this like just as an example when when we do trade negotiations, uh, we will it is always DFAT leading, and we are religious about ho- trying to prevent our stakeholders and our other departments from talking directly to the other side's negotiating team because we know what our negotiating strategy is, we know what the Australian position is, and we are coordinating a single whole of government position. And we don't want some bright spark at the Department of Treasury to just kind of put things on the table from their perspective. I, was say, I think that's a very specific example, and I, and I don't disagree with you there. I, I'm just talking about a much more flexible model where, you know, I, I don't think it would be a risk if you if you like we need someone on the ground in um let me just think i don't know uh well bali's a good example we have okay. a we have a we have a um a consular there now do we or at least a makassar nearby that d- deals with that kind of do we have do you have one consular I'm not, in bali Sorry, i'm not sure but anyway but like why wouldn't we have a represent a representative like a consular person there for obvious reasons and a tourism person there like what's a DFAT's person, like what DFAT's job, a policy officer from DFAT's job is to report on local politics, you know, civil society, these kinds of things, but they are not equipped to report on or deal with or understand what's going on in a lot of places where the relationship is specific and different to what DFAT officers are trained for. And what you're arguing is that it's most important that we go back to capital and kind of get that information from the Department of Agriculture or the Department of Tourism and then represent it on their behalf. I I, don't, I would argue that's an old way of organizing a, a, a kind of information network around the world. And I think a lot of the times DFAT's generalism is a plus, but it's also a massive minus when it comes to doing the kinds of things you're talking about, which is building relationships, like walking the walk and talking the talk. Uh, you know, I, I guess what I'm arguing for isn't that we shouldn't have Australian representation overseas. It's that it should look a lot different to the structure that we do it now. It should be a lot more receptive to our interests in, it, in those regions. And it should be a lot lighter and more flexible. Is what I is what I would argue. It almost and, sorry, feels- just to finish that because the fundamental nature of embassies and big foreign services of policy officers from you know entry level to ambassador reporting on stuff going on in the country that is the model I think is outdated because you do not need that chunky middle of people being like oh this report came out that happened this happened I talked to an academic about this and they say this because that is that whole middle analysis and policy element of it is I would argue replicatable by open source stuff or engaging with a think tank in the country. And all you need in each country is probably high level political representation who are empowered to make decisions and representations and, and kind of speak for the government. And then the service staff, the consular people, the people who are servicing the Australian taxpayers beyond that. I don't think you need the diplomatic footprint that we have, which is what we're talking about. It's interesting because I would almost reverse that and say that, for a country like Australia that is able to hire pretty selectively for its Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade that's able to resource it properly. You say that, but we got in. Yeah, I mean, people slip through the cracks. Your your co-founder, Helen, absolutely carried me through my group, the group portion of my interview. I would have absolutely screwed it up without her. So thank you, thank you, Helen, for creating two careers, uh, one after the other. But 
uh, no, very, very seriously, I think for a country like that, actually empowering more, more of the staff below a senior level to speak to people, both in country and frankly in Australia, would actually probably, you know, you were talking about DFAT having lost its voice in the Australian system. Um, I wonder how much of that is because DFAT is incredibly stingy with who gets to have a voice in the in the Australian system. It's incredibly risk averse about anyone below the rank of a very senior rank talking to anybody external. That waters down at post a bit, but in part that makes it a pretty steep jump. Um, at smaller posts, it's watered down because the ambassador has no option. The ambassador has two staff. He can't be in four places at once. He's got to send two staff or she's got to send two staff somewhere. Makes sense. At bigger missions, you know, you do potentially spend three years in a windowless room reading newspapers in a bureaucracy. So is there an argument for saying that rather than, you know, a more agile model is good in principle, but I fundamentally think that you could potentially generate interest and interest in what DFAT does and interest in opportunities in the world if you set the task right, if you start building demand for it by having DFAT proselytize the value of the information it could get or the representation it could make more broadly at home and then empowered people abroad to go and get it. So it's not necessarily the, it's not that we have the wrong people abroad or in capital. It is that we are not asking them to necessarily do the right things and we are not doing a good enough job of explaining, of finding appetite at home outside of ministerial offices that frankly have, at least in some governments, been pretty disinterested in what happens in 95% of the world. Well, I think you put your finger on something there. And I think that, you know, none of this changes unless there's ministerial appetite for changing it. And I think until, you know, someone on your Twitter feed said we should build a domestic constituency for mm. foreign policy. And I think that's the key, right? Until foreign policy wins and loses votes, or sorry, it loses votes if you screw it up, but wins votes if you do it well, um, it will never be something that is uh, that needs to be, you know, balanced in its risk appetite. It'll always be something of just like, keep yeah your job as defat secretary and you know i'm not i'm i'm paraphrasing and obviously generalizing but your job as defat secretary is don't be on the front pages for any reason um yeah. you know good policy should be in the back of the paper being like oh we had a good meeting with the trade minister and no one cares because it's going well um but if you're on the front page you're doing something wrong um i i guess we're running out of time and i, I you know i find obviously i'm arguing a little bit um, you know, sort of teasing out these arguments and figuring out what I believe and and whatnot. But I I, I want to end by asking you three questions that um, I guess hint. And my my argument here too is hard because I don't have a, haven't given enough thought and I don't have a good sense of what sh what should replace our current system. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to argue against something without being like this is better. Um, but these three questions I think kind of illustrate where I'm getting at. The first one is let's take an ambassador having a meeting with someone senior in the Swiss government at our Swiss embassy that you posited before, how many people do you think genuinely will read that cable back mm. in Canberra, Canberra? Like just as an estimate and like, not just like, oh, it'll inter it'll, it'll inform all these different things, but just open that cable. Yeah. I mean, I think that I would, uh, unless something in that cable were shocking or pertained to a real domestic sensitivity 
or you know had an insight into one of the relationships that the government has historically cared about much much more so if it was about china uh if the ambassador says something really interesting about china or the us or indonesia or people smuggling uh i think that the odds are it would find a absolutely a niche audience at best like we're talking i think probably in the tens of people to be generous um and i and i think you you have hit on a good counterpoint there though that like you never know where the interesting piece of information is going to pop up so it's worth having the swiss ambassador talking to the swiss government about stuff australia cares about in china or the pacific so that yeah. that's a fair point but okay so let's say it's let's say be generous 100 people open that and the embassy costs a couple of million a year to run roughly i have no idea but let's just say that's a that's not a great and, I'm, and again, I'm not saying it's only that's his only job or her only job, but like I just want to get a set. I want I want people to get a sense of like the cost to reward ratio that we're actually talking about because I, I think it I think most people will be surprised how few people read the information coming in from the majority of our diplomatic network. So that's the first thing. The second thing would be if I said to you in another field this system or this model or this you know business model was devised in the 1500s and kind of came to prominence in the 20th century. And yet the information revolution has happened over the last 30 years. And other than kind of slowly updating computers into our offices, nothing much has changed about the core work of the system. Would you think that's a prima facie reason that we should go back to the drawing board and rethink this from first print? Even if you arrive at the same answer. I don't necessarily, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm a tech evangelist. I think technology is generally good and, and worth exploring. I think the other issues that you have raised about interest, about cost, are in some ways much more much more pertinent. And if if the if the if as a listener where you have come down is no kind of in-person connections in the countries are important and information gathering of that form is important, then the question of like, should we could we be doing more on Zoom? Could we be could we be sending cables as like TikToks with like Zoomer influencers talking to their bestie about what's popping off in in Indonesia, like all of these questions become peripheral. The fundamental question is, is there value to having physical official representative presence in foreign countries within diplomatically accredited extensions of the foreign service? So so like, yes, but I think it is a, a tertiary, a secondary question. And I would note that this isn't a DFAT unique thing. Uh, I don't know of any government anywhere in the world that has said cool we're gonna all of our embassies are going to be in the metaverse even estonia hasn't gone that far no and and i and i think that's right it's not just dfat i think you know i, I kind of agree what you said with what you said there um but i think actually rethinking this from the bones up is a is is exactly what dfat will never do because it's you know anti its own book it would lose its own relevance if it's kind of concluded that it wasn't particularly necessary or it needed to be completely, you know, redone. But I think what you're touching on there is like, yes, there is a complete value in having human beings on the ground forming relationships. But what I'm talking about is the embassy model, the diplomatic network model, the costs model, is that the best way to do it? Now, we may, it may well be. We may come back and go like, yeah, that is actually the best way to do it. But we're not asking the questions. And you've just talked about technology. Like, do you, because the third question I was going to ask you is, do you think that DFAT or any foreign service could be doing a better job 
of what of its core work if it had a different mentality a different structure a different kind of organization like we're famously we ran on lotus notes when i joined which was something in the 90s you know people are barely using computers really like it's microsoft word and you know no one is empowered by technology doesn't that tell you also that prima facie that something's wrong with the organizational structure if we're not able to harness this incredible opening up of productivity and 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 insight and defat's still plugging away in windows windowless offices i think that last question is a broader question about most large organizations especially ones with a huge inherent bias towards risk aversion I think we've talked a little bit about whether you would ever be able to improve appetite for foreign service products, whether you could improve ministers' interest in foreign service products. I think that might be achievable. I think some improvement of DFAT processes and DFAT thinking, absolutely achievable. I think defeating civil service risk aversion will never be done because I think that fundamental kind of question of the absolute worst thing you can do in your career is be in a Sydney Morning Herald article, is the the apps that was the one thing we were all most afraid of. And I think while that's true and while that culture pervades, and it will always pervade, because that is the nature of the civil service, that is simply the way incentives are structured, and they will always be structured, I think it, it's not necessarily shocking or damning to me that the civil service is a slow lumbering Based, I think I think that is a problem so far beyond so far beyond the question of specifically the embassy model that 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 it overshadows it. But I think a good place a good place perhaps to to leave it is to say that it, it's worth questioning the value of each individual embassy, and it's worth questioning the value of the embassy model. It's also worth keeping in mind the reasons that we use it. The Vienna Convention on Diplomatic Relations provides a special legal status to these buildings, and this methodology is instantly recognizable everywhere in the world. Every government on earth knows what an ambassador is and knows what a diplomat is, whereas once you begin shaking up that model and replacing ambassadors with alternates, you suddenly start facing a lot of having to do a lot of explaining. So there is there is a inflexibility to the system that would also need to be overcome. But I think, John, you've raised phenomenal questions that are legitimate to ask for any taxpayer, frankly, to say that especially outside of an emergency or, uh, or in a context where information is freely available, is the Australian taxpayer getting value for money? And my answer is, you know, in, in some ways, not always. And I think in some places they're not. I just think the, as I think you do, the issue isn't with the underlying concept. And I don't even think it's as much with the way that DFAT necessarily does it. It is a much larger problem about how foreign affairs fits in to the Australian process and the Australian thinking and where it slots in, the appetite for its product and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's a good way to, a good way to sum it up is, you know, not only are there questions about how we create those products, it's it, there's questions about, how useful those products are and how useful they could be and whether they, you know, could be used in, in, in more, in more effective ways in Australian policymaking. But yeah, I think, I, you know, look, I, I think all of this conversation is me kind of just tossing out ideas about what if, what if, what if. And I think in many ways, that's the point. And I think that DFAT capability review and, you know, every other foreign service does these kinds of internal navel gazing from time to time. I mean, 
there's a tendency to conclude that like, oh, things are pretty good. And if we just make a couple of tweaks, everyone's happy. Um, but other than that, I think asking the questions is actually the, the, the whole point. And, you know, if you come back out at these kind of vague kind of like, well, what we're doing isn't perfect, but it's actually not too bad, then maybe we're all right. I don't know. Uh, let's just find one point of convergence. And that's if you replaced every diplomat who currently spends 90% of their time doing visits and arranging visits with a professional publicist, you would probably save the, the Australian taxpayer a lot of money and make a lot of diplomats much, much happier. If anyone's looking for low-hanging fruit, just guys, professional publicists, all day, they'll be better at it, I promise. And you won't have a mutiny. You'll have a, you, you'll have a parade at DFAT. I can almost guarantee it. So that might be a good, good place to wrap it up and leave it. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Intrigue Explained. As always, thank you to my co-host, John, of International Intrigue. Thank you to all of you for listening. And yeah, that was a great conversation. I feel like you you uh, you almost convinced me that you're right in that one, which is something that I don't like to admit, but it was a great conversation. I, I, if all of our debates focus on whether you have value, I feel like I might win a few. Otherwise, uh, <laughs> otherwise I'm in some trouble. So thank you all for, for listening. As always, please do send us your feedback uh, on Twitter. Please do give the podcast a subscribe if you enjoyed it and do recommend it to your friends and suggest us new topics. Until next time, I'm Dimitri. And I'm John. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone.